Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, spiders, wetsuits, and inspiration. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. James Miggs, who will debunk 9-11 conspiracy theories. Also, we'll find out the deepest spot on the planet. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, except for that little metallic taste. <laughs> what, mercury? I think it was silver, actually. Oh, silver? That tastes metallic as well. Yeah. Especially if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Unfortunately, I'm not. Too bad. So it turns out silver has a number of bactericidal properties. In fact, the ancient Romans treated their water with silver coins. And until uh, antibiotics were introduced, they used silver colloid for wound care. Why does silver have this antimicrobial property? Silver and silver oxides can kill bacteria and viruses by preventing electrons transport in the microbes and basically impairing their cell replication. Hmm. They uh, interact directly with the DNA. So it's actually intercalated? maybe in the DNA? Something like that. Then why doesn't it attack our own DNA? In fact, in high concentrations, it's not very good for us. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So one of the problems they had is the medical devices that are now being commercialized, a lot of them have silver components. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually had to recall one major heart-related component was that the silver oxide that was at the surface began to peel off. It went into the body, which is you know, not a very good thing. No. But what some scientists at Nexion have been trying to do is use nanotechnology to create tiny microparticles or nanoparticles of silver oxide just in the plus two state and embed them directly as these particles into the plastic material that they're creating for right. your medical device. But once that dissolves into your blood or water, your tissue, both the silver and the oxygen work to counteract your microbes mm-hmm. and you use a much lower concentration of silver and as a result, it's much safer. Good development for those who need a new heart valve. <laughs> it should be approved by the FDA very soon. Well, maybe that silver can actually be used as a disinfectant for wetsuits. Yeah, why not? (laughs) I guess they really don't need to use one. Apparently, a simple detergent or Clorox or bleach would actually do a good job. Uh Uh-huh. But apparently, divers don't use that. For deterring what? Scuba divers can actually inadvertently be carrying coral disease from one reef to another. Uh, Because of the pathogen sticking to their wetsuit. Okay, so they could be infecting coral reefs that were previously unadulterated, right? Right. So they're kind of like the mosquito. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) oops. (laughs) Yeah, it was actually fascinating because a diver and microbiologist, Kay Morano-Briggs of George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, investigated this issue. She dipped swatches of wetsuit material uh-huh. in lightly infected water and counted how much bacteria clung to it. Uh-huh. And apparently it was a very large amount. And just leaving it for a short period of time, you could see the bacteria quickly proliferate on the material. But the good news is basically washing the material with 5% bleach or even 7% solution of Lysol can clear it off. Well, you know, maybe <laughs> that's what I should take my showers in. <laughs> you actually take showers. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, air showers. Oh, okay. Yeah. You should be washing your wetsuit anyway. If you're sharing your wetsuit, well, that's even more reason to wash it. (laughs) This was actually interesting research presented at the American Society for Microbiology in Orlando, Florida. (laughs) 
So do you have one of those aha moments, or is it rather a doggone diggity dog? My aha moments are more like ho hum. <laughs> ho hum. Yeah, those are mine. But psychologists have been wondering what kind of brain activities lead to the intuitive type of processes that give us great answers to some of our problems. Quoting Louis Pasteur here, chance favors only the prepared mind.、Mm-hmm. It turns out that the people who have these aha moments, who have these intuitive insights, show increased medial frontal activity rather than from the occipital lobes. It certainly makes sense, right? Because the、uh, occipital lobes are predominantly involved in just vision, <laughs> right? Whereas the medial prefrontal lobes are involved in higher order cognition and planning.、Mm-hmm. So a group of researchers at Drexel University made these discoveries using electroencephalograms and functional MRI, two standard tools for、um, brain activity, right? In humans, anyway. And the other interesting thing was that for those big aha moments, the process actually begins before they even try to start to solve the problem. From this research, they hope eventually they can help people to attain the frame of mind that's needed to solve some of our complex scientific problems. I, I don't know what the therapy would be:、uh, stimulating the medial prefrontal lobe, meditation. <laughs> <laughs> what would the Dalai Lama do? This was reported in a recent issue of Psychological Science. Finally, you don't have to be a human to seek inspiration. Hot dog on diggity dog. Ho hum. <laughs> It turns out sea spiders are actually trying to figure out where in the evolutionary niche. So are these spiders that live off the ocean? They live in the sea, and、uh, <laughs> but the sea spiders apparently puzzle because it has similar characteristics like other arachnids. But apparently the pincers in the front of its mouth are similar to ones called chelicerae in regular spiders. But they come out of the front of the animal, whereas、uh, regular chelicerae on land spiders, for example, come out towards the middle of the head. Huh. Question is whether or not these two spiders are actually evolved from the same precursor animal, or in fact they're divergent in evolution.、Uh, spiders are arachnids, which means they have eight appendages, right?、Mm-hmm. So are they related to any other similar sea creatures with these characteristics? You'd expect them to be related at least to other sea crustaceans, for example. Yeah. But they are more related to these、uh-huh. arachnids, right? Turns out there are two competing ideas. One came from just a study of the anatomy of its nerve tissues, which seems to show a divergent anatomy with nerves innervating these pincers coming from the front. Of the brain. Okay. But more recent study, actually looking at the developmental genes involved, show that a similar gene actually controls the development of both the sea spider's pincers and the land spider pincers,、hmm. suggesting that if it's a similar gene, then they must have probably evolved from similar common source and are therefore highly related. Is a pretty interesting development in evolutionary biology, then, huh? Yeah, you know, evolutionary biologists—they're always trying to find the missing links and put the puzzle together. So, if we take these sea spiders and put them on land, maybe the final solution is for them to adopt the confirmation that the land spiders now have, huh? Yeah. Well, if you look at these pincers, they're actually much, much bigger than a typical spider. So perhaps、okay. they might have to adapt somehow to their land-based brethren. If you're interested in all the cool things that evolution has in store, and this is actually reported in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. James Miggs, editor in chief of Popular Mechanics, will join us to debunk 9/11 conspiracy theories. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Birkenrock Science Show. Well, it has now been five years since the terrorist attacks on September 11th shocked the nation and devastated many lives. Although the tragedy event should not be forgotten or mitigated, a growing number of conspiracy theorists have proposed that more happened on that fateful Tuesday morning than is officially being recounted. But do these theories stand up to detailed scientific investigation? Well, these claims are investigated in the new book, Debunking 9-11 Myths, Why Conspiracy Theories Can't Stand Up to the Facts, released by Popular Mechanics and based on a popular article originally published in the magazine. We are pleased to have joining us Mr. James Meggs, editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics and one of the editors behind this book. Mr. Meggs, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. I think for most of us who remember the events of that day, the official explanation actually makes a lot of sense. But I'm curious in your experience, in general, where do the questions and ambiguities arise for these conspiracy theorists? Well, you mentioned what the official explanation. I think one thing that you see a lot in the conspiracy movement is the attempt to try to make it sound as if what we know about September 11th is all just the product of the government. And in fact, what we know about that day comes from a huge array of sources, from eyewitnesses, journalists from all over the world, a number of studies that were commissioned by the government, but many that were put together by outside organizations, engineering groups. And it's a remarkable accumulation of evidence. And typically what we see in conspiracy theories is they ignore all that evidence and zero in on on a few small details that they think are anomalous and that would, if true, completely discredit the mainstream view. So what we did was we just focused in strictly on the factual points that conspiracy theorists themselves most often cite in defense of their theories. We didn't get into the politics. I mean, we're popular mechanics. We're a magazine about facts. So we just focused on things like the claim that jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. Therefore, it can't account for why the World Trade Center towers fell down. There must have been bombs in the building. Or the idea that the hole in the uh, Pentagon wasn't big enough to have been made by a commercial jet. It must have been a a guided missile. And, And so we really tried to track those down and essentially fact check them and see what the facts are. And what was so interesting was in every single case, the very facts and even the quotes that were being used to support these theories turned out to be just flat wrong. They were either taken out of context or misquotes or just completely incorrect. I see. I mean, that maybe is a very good point. Where do most of the uh, conspiracy theorists get their evidence for conspiracy? From other conspiracy theorists. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, it, there's a lot of circular uh, citations mm. here. If you look at some of these articles, they have the appearance of academic rigor. But when you really get down to the footnotes, you see they're citing other conspiracy websites, which are citing other conspiracy websites or other conspiracy books. It's, you'd have to go a long way before you find something that a scientist or, or a historian would recognize as an actual fact. So what we, we dug down and looked for those. And we found that very typically they were wildly out of context. For example, Thierry Maison, the French author who, and somebody started a lot of this or, or was one of the first, he wrote a book called 9-11, The Big Lie, that alleges that uh, the Pentagon essentially attacked itself with a guided missile. Mm. And he, in one of his speeches in the Middle East, he quoted an eyewitness who said that the, it looked like a cruise missile with wings. Well, I, actually, I don't have the page open in front of it, but we talked to that eyewitness. He was He's a journalist, actually. He was stuck in traffic outside the Pentagon, and his full quote goes something like, you know, I looked up and I saw this jet, this American Airlines jet. It went right over for us. It looked like a cruise missile with wings, and it hit the building. Huh. You know, so when you see the full quote, and you see that it's not just a, an accidental, you know, it wasn't like he was sort of accidentally quoted out of context. That, that's a, uh, a pretty severe, <laughs> you know, that, that's a pretty severe case of taking somebody out of context. And he's very upset about it and feels outraged that his words have been 
misused. And we found that again and again. We went back to the source material. We went back to the engineers and scientists you see quoted on these sites. Turns out they strongly object to how their quotes and words are being used. Hmm. As long as we're talking about you know, the Pentagon, that is one of the main claims is that it was hit by a cruise missile. And they say there's no debris from the plane to be found near the Pentagon. Right, right. And in fact, there was some debris on the lawn. But, you know, a plane traveling at 500 miles an hour hitting a reinforced concrete building, it's not just going to crack in half and sit on the lawn. The plane struck the building and largely entered the building and tore through the Pentagon. The pieces of the plane, the shredded pieces, were recovered. The black box was recovered. The bodies of the passengers and crews were recovered and identified through forensics. There's photos of a chunk of landing gear that made it all the way through a couple of rings of the Pentagon, or a ring. So it, actually there's a mountain of evidence, but what we typically see in conspiracy theories is that people zero in on just a few little details and, and ignore the, the great body of, of evidence in support of the mainstream view. Hmm. Another one of the, uh, the issues that's always regarding the planes, a lot of people claim that, for example, the hijackers couldn't have had enough training to pilot these planes. Yes, that's, we said a lot. The, and, and it's amplified by the idea that the flying they did was some kind of extremely mm. difficult top gun <laughs> level flying. In fact, all of the pilots uh, had at least 250 hours of flight time. They were all FAA certified commercial pilots. They weren't great pilots. You know, and they didn't exactly distinguish themselves in flight school, but they got through it. They got the training they needed. And what they did that day wasn't particularly difficult by the standards of, of aviation. They took over planes already in flight on clear days. All they had to do was program the GPS unit, which is not that different from the one you might have in your car, and then fly to major cities and crash into the biggest buildings in those cities. And, in fact, while they were flying, they, were, they weren't flying that well. There were phone calls reporting that the planes were making jerky movements and up and down. A couple of times they hit the microphone thinking they were talking to the, the passengers in the cabin. In fact, actually they were talking to air traffic control. That's the only reason, in fact, that they were able to figure out initially that planes had been hijacked. So they weren't great pilots, but sadly for us, they, they were good enough. Hmm. Some people feel as if military planes could have possibly shot those planes down before they even got to their targets, but they didn't make it because of orders that they should stand down. Yeah, this is a very widespread view, and this kind of thing, in some ways, it goes back to called the myth of government hypercompetence. Hmm. Uh, you know, in a lot of conspiracy theories, you had see this idea that NORAD is this incredibly organized coast-to-coast -coast system that, you know, anytime a commercial aircraft goes off course, they've got a F-15 on, on its tail within minutes, and they know exactly where every plane is at every time. It was actually, we were surprised to find out how disorganized and incomplete it really is. NORAD was really set up. It's, it's a relic of the Cold War. It was set up to intercept bombers coming in from overseas. Over time, they adapted, and they were kind of focused on drug runners and other things. But their entire orientation was to aircraft entering the United States from outside. Now, you could argue they should have been more prepared. They should have thought about the, the possibility of hijackings and other things. But they really hadn't done that enough. And, and so the, the failures to intercept those planes on that day... They didn't need a stand-down order. They weren't ready. And, in fact, there, there are actually very few aircraft in the entire continental United States. Uh, there, was, there were only 14 aircraft that were ready to fly as part of NORAD. You know, people have this idea that every Air Force base is plane fueled and ready to take off, and it's just it's not the case. And, and a lot of people can't imagine the government isn't more on the ball, but, in fact, they weren't. Hmm. Has that situation changed now? Uh, yeah, it's totally changed. <laughs> I mean, they've completely reoriented their protocols. But also think back to September 10th. Would you have wanted to live in a country where every time a commercial aircraft goes slightly off course, 
you know, there's an mm-hmm. F-15 on your tail with armed Sidewinder missiles just <laughs> ready to shoot you down. I, I think that would have been, for most of us, a very, very chilling prospect. So to assume that that was the case and that, you know, Dick Cheney or somebody had to order them not to shoot is really to imagine a, a world that just did not exist at that time. Mm-hmm. Maybe a related issue is some people claim actually that Flight 93 was in fact brought down by a missile. And I think to us, when we started this project, that was probably the most plausible claim. I mean, after all, if that plane had gotten to Washington and, and they'd been able to locate it, and they, they would have shot it down if mm-hmm. they could. I, but the fact is there, there were no military aircraft anywhere near it. And the terrorists did something that was very simple but kind of brilliant. They, they turned off the transponders in the planes. You know, most of us have, have this idea that Air traffic control has these giant radars, and they can track every plane at every minute. But in fact, most of the information about the planes in the air comes from the transponders in the planes that are transmitting their data and their location. If you Mm -hmm. turn that off, then they have to rely just on what they call the passive radar, which just gives back a vague blip, but with no information about what the aircraft is. So when they turned off those transponders, the air traffic controllers were completely stymied. They didn't know which way the aircraft were going. For a long time, they thought Flight 93 was still continuing west towards California, and they were trying to find it. They thought maybe it had Hmm. crashed. It took a long time for them to get all that sorted out and begin to figure out where those planes were too long, sadly. Hmm. People claim that there might actually have been explosives in the World Trade Center to help bring them down. So a plane itself could not bring down the World Trade Center just hitting it. Right. This is probably the most widespread. A lot of this comes from people studying these various films on the Internet. And buildings come down, you can see puffs of smoke and dust coming out of some of the windows. People think those look like demolition squibs or or some kind of, of explosive. The fact is, if you think about the World Trade Center... The collapse of those Twin Towers has been the most intensively studied engineering failure in, in history. Mm-hmm. Thousands of pages of, of engineering reports, not all of them sponsored by the government. Hundreds of engineers from all over the country, major engineering schools, have looked at this. And what they've seen is that when you put 10,000 gallons of jet fuel in a building and scattered across multiple floors, the planes didn't hit straight on. They hit Both planes were banked when they hit, so they, they intercepted eight or nine floors each and cause these very widespread fires. It's, we had Vincent Dunn, the former uh, deputy fire chief for the city of New York, in our office a couple of days ago. We were t- to talk about this, and, and he, he explained to us that World Trade Center towers were not well equipped to deal with fire, and to have a fire raging simultaneously on multiple floors to that degree was really unprecedented. Furthermore, we think of a skyscraper as being a rigid steel frame structure with girders, but in fact, the World Trade Centers were revolutionary, very, very lightweight design center. I mean, you look at the Empire State Building, it's, the, the building itself weighs 38 pounds per cubic foot of enclosed space. The World Trade Center weighs 8 pounds per foot. That's less than balsa wood. And when those fires raged through, they heated the steel. Conspiracy theorists will often claim jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. But what the engineers will sh- tell you is that it still doesn't have to melt to fail. You had thousands of tons of weight above the impact point on each floor. As those fires raged, they weakened the steel. They made the floors, which were suspended by these very lightweight steel trusses, begin to sag. Those pulled in the outer tubular beams that formed the outer structure of the building. Many of those had already been severed by the planes themselves. The planes had also damaged the inner core of the building. And as the heat caused the whole thing to sag, the weight from above finally caused the structure to fail. Some engineers are impressed the building stood as long as they did. Yeah, and in fact, the, the difference in construction, for example, there was a uh, bomber that once hit the uh, Empire State Building, but that caused very little damage. Yes, exactly, and that was a B-25 bomber mm-hmm. in 1945. 
And yes, it didn't do that much damage because that building was built like a bunker compared to the, the World Trade Center. And of course, the B-25 is a fraction of the size mm. uh, of the aircraft that, that hit the World Trade Center. But the other thing about the explosives, you know, we talked to the heads of all the major demolition companies, and they said, first of all, it would take months to wire a major building like that for demolition. Mm. Secondly, you wouldn't do it in the manner that you see those buildings come down those buildings, the collapses began at the point of impact. So to imagine this whole demolition thing, they would have wired the building that way and then make sure the planes crashed at exactly the right floor. And just trying to imagine how this would all happen, is it gets pretty elaborate. Another thing you see the conspiracy theories cite a lot is the idea that there were seismographs at Columbia University picked up these sharp seismic spikes that proved that there were explosives in the building that went off to precipitate each collapse. You know, that's the kind of thing. What we, what we saw our role is just digging into those kinds of core facts. So we, we went to Columbia. We looked at their report, freely available. We talked to the geologists who wrote the report about what the seismographs picked up that day. The report says nothing of the sort. And the, and the geologists are outraged that their, their work has been so misrepresented. There's absolutely no, nothing in the seismographic signal whatsoever that indicates explosives, just the energy of huge buildings falling to the ground. Hmm. Given the weight of all the scientific evidence that supports the more conventional view, why do you believe these conspiracy theories persist? Well, you know, in many fields, people have the need to believe that there's some greater force at work. Some of it's politically driven. Uh, I think some of it's driven by natural curiosity. And people have a lot of anger about September 11th, justifiable anger, why our government didn't do a better job of being prepared, protecting us. So people move from saying, they should have done a better job. They should have been more alert to the warnings. They should have been better prepared to thinking that somebody, somehow somebody deliberately was involved. In, and, you know, people don't always trust the government, and they shouldn't necessarily always trust the government. I mean, people should be skeptical. They should ask questions. But if you're going to ask questions, you need to listen to the answers. And what we find troubling about some corners of the conspiracy movement is the tendency not to listen to the answers, but to continue repeating the incorrect facts mm. and sort of burying anybody who dis disagrees with under uh, accusations and attacks, as opposed to really wrestling with the, the mountain of evidence that does exist that could help us understand that day. Mm. Opinion, do you think uh, these myths or these conspiracy theories will persist, I mean, despite all of the evidence that... Well, <laughs> they, they seem to have really gained some traction. You know, our, our goal is just to help people get to the core facts we're not touching politics. We're not touching these sort of grand global theories. We're, we're focusing on concrete physical evidence. But what's so striking is how every time you trace one of these claims down to the actual physical claim, it turns out to be wildly incorrect. And the conspiracy movement seems to just, when something's challenging, they just move on or just keep repeating it. And, you know, the original story of the popular mechanics did get a lot of attention in conspiracy circles, and yet many of the points which were debunked are just repeated endlessly today, usually accompanied by an accusation that somehow we're complicit, and so is Scientific American magazine, and so is the nation, and so is anybody else who's ever had the audacity to actually take conspiracy theorists at their word. When they say, somebody should check this out, we did check it out, and we did make a good faith effort to get to the facts. And the facts, in the end, at least on the ones that we looked at, simply aren't there, and we're, we're open to investigating more if people think we missed something. All right. Well, the new book is Debunking 9-11 Myths. And uh, Mr. Biggs, again, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. And you are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. That was Mr. James Miggs, editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics, debunking conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11. Well, coming up next, it's the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned.
Okay, now it is the French existentialist suffering from the deep ennui with the meaning, the depths of it all. How deep does it go? Well, not as far deep as the Marianas Trench, which is, in fact, the deepest trench on the planet. And now, Tokyo Kids with uh, this week's question of the week. It's found in personal care chemicals, also in your salad dressing and other goodies in the supermarket. It's EDTA, but what does it do? If you know or think you know what EDTA is, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your food might preserve a little longer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>